This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, AOPA pushes the NTSB to follow the science. And Mooney hits the skies again with a new ovation and acclaim. Also, AOPA is looking into some FBO pricing. And new news on safety-enhancing equipment. All right, David, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, we're, uh, we got a really fun guest this week. Um, Max Trescott's coming over. And uh, Max, is a, Max is a neat guy. He is. He's a, he's a writer. Mm-hmm. He's a podcaster. Yeah. He's an instructor. Yeah. Tell and, me more. Uh, he's, really, he's a tech guy. Um, he lives near Silicon Valley. Um, he's very much into Garmin's. He flies a lot of Cirrus. Okay. But he's he's also a, he's a he's a proponent of stick and rudder stuff, and so we're going to talk a lot about the technology and you know where is that line between automation, stick and rudder, which I know is, it'll be a continual debate. Yeah. Um. So we had a lot of fun. He's he's an interesting guy. And you connected with him via Skype this time. I did. Okay. Because yeah, he's out in California. And he's, gotcha. Yeah. Um. This is Aaron during Sun and Fun. I tried to get him at Sun and Fun, but um, that's a long long haul for him. So I wonder if he'll be at our Camarillo fly-in. Yeah, he might. That's a good point. That's coming up, right? Actually, it is coming up, Ian. And uh, let our podcaster listeners know that they should make plans for April twenty eighth and 29th. Yeah. So, a two day format this year. A little different. And which I think is going to be a lot of fun. They've got so we've got the core show on Saturday, right? right? And that's right. still free. Yeah, seminars and uh, events, things like that. Yep, ice cream, ice cream social, Mark yeah. Baker Town Hall, pancake breakfast. I'm, the fo- I'm focused we, on the food, the things we know and love. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then um, Friday, though, this this is kind of going to be kind of neat. It's a little bit of an experiment. We're going to see how it goes this year. Yeah, these really expanded, in depth workshops. Uh, workshops. Yeah, they're going to be cool, and they're going to be uh, around the country as we go to the different regional flying in. As you know, we're going to concentrate on things that are local to that area. Mm-hmm. So uh, now I've not been flying around Southern California, but there are mountains and there is water. Yeah. 
So we'll have so we're going to cover it both. We'll have workshops on that. We'll yeah. have a IFR refresher, and uh, we're actually going to have one about um, flying with your companion. Hmm, that uh, cool. one of our good buddies, Jolie Lucas, is going to help. I think that's going to be a lot of fun for folks who are interested in flying with their families or other folks. Yeah. So um, if you've been to a flying, you really like it, and you want to stretch it a little bit, stretch the experience, and make it over two days, you can do that now. You can. There are a couple of things I'd like to let our podcaster yeah, listeners yeah, yeah. know about, and um, one is that they we're going to have a, a Seller's Corral, where you can kick the tires and, yes, light the fires. <laughs> Is this like the flea market at Oshkosh? It or? sounds like it's bigger than a flea market, <laughs> where you can look at aircraft and you know walk up and down the line and, and talk to some AOPA aviation finance folks and insurance people if you have questions about that. That's okay. something new that we're trying to do. So, that, like. so people can bring their airplanes and offer them for sale there? I hope so. Yeah. Well, I have to see how many bring their plane. Well, if you bring your plane with a for sale sign on it, how are you going to get back home? How do you home? get home? Yeah. What happens if you make the deal? Right. Or unless you buy another one there. Yeah. Which you could. Yeah. A couple of cool things that I, I'd like to let you know about. I read a little story today on, so I got a little bit more deep into it. But there's going to be two really cool flyouts on Saturday. So the idea is to go to some of these workshops on Friday, mm-hmm. learn a lot about the, you know, the different facets of flying to make yourself safer and more skill, skillful pilot. So take those skills from California, and you got the mountains, and again, you got the water. Mm-hmm. So there's a flyout to uh, Catalina Island. Oh, cool. Have you been there? I never have. Have you been over? No. I asked Alyssa Miller uh, about that, yeah. and she actually got her tailwheel endorsement out that way, and she flew oh. to Catalina Island. You fly over a bay. Yeah. You fly out in the ocean. Yeah. And it's an island. It's like 1,600 feet in elevation at the airport. Elevation wow. sixteen hundred feet, and don't forget that's coming up, you know, right from sea level. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty stark. Yeah. So, uh, but it's beautiful out there. You know, biodiverse island, very mm-hmm. cool. A lot of history, a lot of aviation history out there. Mm-hmm. And it's jointly uh, presented by us and also the uh, Cessna Pilot Society. Okay. So that's kind of cool. And then uh, there's also going to be another one if you want to go inland to the Kern Valley Airport. It's an overnight campout. Oh yeah, they have a great campground there. They I've do. Seen that. Yeah, I've never been, but I've, I've read about it. It seems like a cool place. It does. I looked it up a little bit. Again, I haven't been there. I looked it up, and there are 9,000-foot peaks right there from the Sierra Nevadas. Awesome. And then there's a lake, a deep blue lake. And you're right. There's um, camping right adjacent to the airfield. They have a cafe there with the special. It's called the Pilot Burger. Oh, nice. Yeah, and it's less than, less than 10 bucks too, oh, hey. for the burger. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and there's other, other options there, too. And they've got some really cool discounts if people want to go whitewater rafting or uh, do a little horseback riding or a little mm. hiking. Wow. There's some really cool discounts there. That's uh, brought to us by the Recreational Aviation Foundation members and folks in that area. That makes sense. That's right up their alley. It so, is. It's yeah. right, right on, on point. Yeah. And a couple of really cool things that AOPA is offering, and, and, and I might take myself up on one of these. Mm-hmm. There's a tour of Point Magoo Naval Air Station. Okay. So that place is where they have some really cool hardware. A lot of unmanned vehicle experiments oh. are going on there. Hmm. Pretty cool stuff, unmanned aircraft stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, C-130s that can be converted over to firefighting air tankers. Oh. It happens right there. And you get to have lunch with a commanding officer oh, nice. at the station. Nice. That's only $12. And AOPA is, is handling the transportation of that. And then it's free transportation if you fly in. But you got to pay a little bit to get in the door of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library Museum. Oh, yeah. Which is supposed to be really impressive. It is. And you yeah. know what? They have air and one of the Air Force One aircraft there. Yeah, it's like the centerpiece of the whole uh, the whole library. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't seen an Air Force One up close, it's quite a remarkable aircraft, no matter what year model yeah. aircraft Yeah, and you can walk at. through it there, right? I believe you can. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's uh, two really cool excursions on Saturday and two really cool overnight yeah. flyouts. 
So it uh, looks like a lot of camaraderie and a lot of learning opportunities and just a lot of fun. Yeah, fantastic. Cool. cool. Great. Well, so let's get into the news a little bit. Let's do. First thing we want to talk about is alternative paths to certification, which is a really jumbled way to say cheaper, better avionics, right? And safer. Yeah. Yeah, and more more available to us and a lot of stuff that came in from the experimental market. And, That's uh, right. AAPA has been a, a longtime proponent of uh, keeping aviation affordable and mm-hmm. fun. And uh, I know that as a former aircraft owner myself, there are several experimental avionics that I wish that I could have had access to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, one thing that just came out this week is that Garmin announced, you know, their G5. That's oh, their little that's uh, a nice box. digital attitude unit. Well, now, of course, once you've got the hardware, all they have to do is reprogram the software. Now they've got an HSI version. Oh, nice. So now you can have dual setups, the attitude and the HSI. Yeah. Um, I think they're around 2500 bucks a piece, and you've got basically a full glass panel for 5000 bucks. You know, that seems to me like a no-brainer, Ian, when you're thinking of uh, certification and ways to make flying safer. Mm-hmm. That's a, a real key thing. And then it opens the door to other stuff that we've already seen a little bit like uh, angle of attack indicators as well as future developments that we don't even know about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our Sweeps 172 has one of those Garmin G5s in it. It does. It does. Yeah. We don't have the dual setup yet because we, you know, we did the panel prior, but um, this is going to be a really, really neat little thing. And actually Garmin, I, I said about 5,000, they actually discounted a little bit. Um, if you get the two, it's 4,600. Right. And the great part about this is it's really easy to install. And, uh, you know, Garmin has the STC. It's like 600 airplanes and they're able to do it cheaper because, the FAA has these alternative paths to certification. You know, I think that's a win-win for everyone involved in, um, you know, hot on their heels or maybe in front of their heels or the folks at TrueTrack, which which um, they've had experimental aircraft uh, association, I guess, autopilots out there for, for a little while. Yeah, they're supposed to have great autopilots. Yeah, and I saw one installed in a Cessna 172 last year at Air Venture, mm-hmm. and I believe that this is going to open the door for these guys, too. Yeah, so we, yeah, that's another story that we've got up, um, kind of piggybacking on the G5, is AOPA has been working a lot behind the scenes on this issue, Yeah, a lot that we, you know, we don't um, talk about on a day-to-day basis, because it's a lot of process stuff. But um, the FAA, uh, one reason these these pieces are coming out a little bit scattershot is the FAA is still working through how they're going to certify everything. And AOPA has been a proponent of doing a having a, a process whereby this can be done really the same for every manufacturer. You know, they go this is the same process, and they're they're not having to blaze a trail every time they do this, right? And it's less costly for yeah. the manufacturers for to do those kind of updates. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so go on the website and check this out because it's what they call it is a risk based PMA approach. Uh huh. So you know the less immediate safety impact a device would have to the aircraft essentially the easier it is to certify oh i gotcha now yeah. so if you're looking at something that's of primary importance it's going to take a little bit longer yeah something that augments uh some feature less time yeah because what the way it was before is this one size fits all certification oh, and so, it would hold everything up yeah so if you had this really simple device that you want to certify versus you know an entire glass integrated glass cockpit i mean those are two totally different things yeah. so but it would have to go through the same process yeah oh man that didn't make sense at all no it doesn't <laughs> no so this is part of their new touchy-feely approach from the faa <laughs> yeah i like it yeah it's, it's it is good it is good so lots more is going to come out there there's a lot more details about that project but i guess the best thing is it's continuing we're seeing lower cost options, and uh, it's all it's all good. Lower cost means more gas, means more time to fly. Yeah, I like it. Absolutely. Okay. So if you want to fly fast, 
Oh, you yeah. know this. Oh, yeah. What do you get? We got some news from the Mooney people out there in Kerrville, Texas. So their ovation and the acclaim have been, uh, the new versions have been certified. Yeah. And this is a dual door version. Yeah. One might argue that they already had two doors because there was like a little hatch in the back that yeah. you could <laughs> pop open from the inside. But these are two real doors. Yeah, like, two like passenger doors. Two, two passenger doors. Yep. And those are slick aircraft. It's so good to see them uh, innovating again and back in the air. It really I'm is. I'm excited. Yeah, they are really, really great in airplanes. Lots of fun. I test flew a long time ago, actually, for a story. Um, the, the Type S, the Acclaim Type S. Oh, man, that's slick. This is this thing that does 242 knots. Yeah. And, oh, man, it just such a cool beast i loved it that's really hip yeah that um i always like the way that you get in a mooney and yeah it's a whole different feel from flying like a cessna 172 which they're great airplanes Cessnas yeah. are but the mooney is like you get in and strap the plane on you yeah absolutely you. yeah it's really cool it's like a sports car yeah. and you got the push rod uh, you know yeah uh, steering and everything feel and, like uh, you're sitting the on links. the floor and... you do but you get used to it and it's comfortable your legs are stretched out in front of you mm. and honestly i mean i prefer that mm. yeah i always I, you know once i got into the Cessna 172s which i learned in that's yeah. where i got my you know certification but it's um it's just a different beast hmm. uh, the moonies are neat what uh, which model do you have again? Well, I don't have one now, but right. I had, had an M20C the C, for, okay, for a number yeah. of years. And yeah. That was a carburetor version, 180 horsepower engine, yeah. and manual. What they called a manual Johnson bar gear. Yeah, great airplane. Yeah. I had an M20F model. They called that the Executive. Yeah, I had one of those for a while too. Okay, and uh, those are both. They were both great aircraft. The C model was pretty darn easy to maintain. To be mm. honest with you, mm. it was carbureted. You know, pretty simple. What, what can I say? They're 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 so cool. They had a hydraulic flaps you know and yeah. these donut donut bushings on the landing gear yeah they say those are a concern i guess on some of the older ones you right? just have to keep an eye on them the yeah. rubber tends to get old and you yeah. have to replace it like you need like a shock on your car yeah you know yeah. but uh but they're available if you and the other thing about moonies is that you do still have to kind of go to a, a place an fbo that knows what they're doing okay they really do the mechanics really have to kind of know how to get inside and work on those aircraft hmm. They had a little bit of a reputation for for being uh, hard to get to to places that, you know inside the aircraft are oh, hard small. to get to. Yeah, but but I, I didn't find that to be the case. Of course, I didn't have to work on it that much yeah, myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah. had to come out Easy with the money to, to pay say, for that. Right, yeah. Right. So uh, what the C does is it like 140 knots on like nine gallons. Yeah. 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 yeah that's a, awesome. It was a very uh, efficient aircraft. Plus they look cool, right? Yeah. They're yeah. neat. Well, these new airplanes are, are bigger, you know, obviously faster. Yeah. Better technology. I mean, we're talking about Garmin NXI avionics in there mm -hmm. and uh, double doors. It's gonna be hip yeah yeah with a hip price tag um i didn't get into that which you'd expect <laughs> for a new airplane um the acclaim i mean you're talking about so it's the m20 tn tn tur turbo normalized Got it. okay um so those things are fire breathers i mean you know you're you're talking a huge engine um 769 thousand dollars that's a that lot guy. of money yeah but there are other aircrafts that are similar that yeah. are more expensive yeah absolutely Absolutely. So you get a lot of there's a lot of bang for the buck though. I yeah. forgot which NASCAR driver bought one of those and was flying it around. That makes sense. Do you remember? They would like the speed yeah, thing because they were just like point A to point B. I'm I, there. I you know, okay. I grew up up north, right? Yeah. NASCAR drivers, all their names. It's like Jimmy Smith and Bobby Allison. Yeah. It's like they all Rusty the Jimmys Wallace. and the Bobbies yeah. and the Rusties and yeah. I don't know. I yeah. I, I lost track. There. <laughs> There are quite a few of them. There's one named Danica. So well, Danica Patrick. Yeah, because she's a NASCAR now, right? She is. She's okay. a female driver. Yes. But uh, but you're right. And actually, in the NASCAR world, uh, interestingly enough, 
very few of the NASCAR drivers now are their own pilots, where for a number of years they did fly yeah, themselves That's true. That around. was like a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's one of those. And there's so many drivers. I mean, there's so many cars on the track. It's like I, I could I can there are. keep track. Did you know that uh, Textron and Cessna actually sponsor a couple of the, the, the they drivers? They do, yeah. I, but I couldn't tell you who. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. You put me on this. I don't, I don't uh, know which driver, but I do. Re- they used it in marketing a little bit, I think, at the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jamie McMurray is one of the drivers, and, uh, yeah. and he drives a Chevrolet, and, uh, and they were uh, sponsoring that. But um so Textron and Cessna, they both have recognized that you know a way to get their name out there. Why are we talking about Textron and Cessna when we're talking about? Memes? I don't know. That's a good question. Okay, <laughs> talk uh, about NASCAR, I guess. Yeah, fast. That's right. Point. That's right. Point to point. Um, okay, something like totally at the other end of the spectrum. Okay. The NTSB. Oh boy. Um, this is I, I. I'm really I hesitate just because this this I think is a really interesting story. I, a lot of people who maybe don't pay close attention to NTSB reports probably think NTSB, they're above politics, yeah. totally above board. It's like all they do is follow the science, very deliberative. Right down the middle of the street. Yeah. Supposedly. Supposedly. Right. When you get into it and follow this stuff closely, it turns out that's not always the case. They sort of kind of have a vendetta against general aviation. And why is that? Well... I guess my personal feeling is it makes good headlines. Yeah, we make the top 10 every year. Yeah. If our podcast listeners don't know what that is, yeah. should we explain it to yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. They have a they have the most wanted list. Yeah, we're on there. Yeah. But perhaps for no reason. Yeah, you know, the accident rate's been dropping in GA um, pretty substantially. Steadily dropping. Yeah. As, we, as we introduce more safety enhancements that mm-hmm. we just talked about in this podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, the NTSB is charged with um, investigating all these accidents. Many of them they never go to. Um, the FAA does it. And um, so we found it. We've, we've seen in a couple of cases mm-hmm. where absent any other criteria, yeah. they assign a cause as something they think might have been the case. So they kind of leap to a conclusion, if you will. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, like jumping ahead to the last page of a nice novel without reading the middle of it. <laughs> Nobody ever does that. No. Well, apparently they've done that a few times. The yeah. NTSB. I was very surprised to hear about that. Yeah, it, it is a, a really interesting thing. I mean, so basically AOP is pushing back on him saying, mm, you guys got to follow the science. You got a job to do here. One in particular uh, recently, essentially there were some eyewitness accounts and the way the airplane was and where it happened that seemed like a classic stall spin accident. Right, in the landing pattern. Yeah, and of course there's no, you know, without uh, some sort of a digital recorder on board or flight data recorder, there, there's no way that for them directly to know that, right? That's true. What happens. That's right. And so, yeah, you have to sort of take the evidence. Well, there are eyewitness accounts. This happens often in the pattern. Well, the NTSB went a slightly different route. They did. They jumped ahead <laughs> on this one. And went to medical problem they did and they there were some unexplained moments i guess in the cockpit where they said well this could have happened and the pilot could have had this and yes a plus b did not equal c yeah and so um we have rightly been pushing back two accidents in particular and we also say uh jim coon actually our, our head of government affairs he has this great quote here he says it should be acceptable to make a no determination of cause finding that would I think that there are several cases where you could you could say that. Yeah. But like um I don't want to put you on the spot, but we still don't really know what happened to John Kennedy Jr. Yeah. Do we? Well, I mean, the Monday morning quarterbacking is eh, you fly over 
water uh, at, at night. night with a hazy horizon yeah, and probably and and don't he had, he he actually had um, an ankle problem. Yeah, that's right. So if he got into an unusual attitude where you're supposed to kick right rudder. Yeah, aggressively, or, for instance. Yeah, or whatever, wherever he was. Do, yeah. and he couldn't do that. Yeah, that could be a problem too. It could. Yeah, and so you would think spatial disorientation. You would think but nobody knows. We really. don't. There's yeah. no one there to tell us. Yeah. You know, we just there were actually were no witnesses for that. Yeah. So we don't know. Yeah. But we we learn and we train to avoid stuff like that, mm-hmm. just like we learned and trained to avoid the mishap that was in the pattern that you started uh, speaking about a little while ago. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a lot more on this. NTSB, no doubt, uh, we'll hear back from. They're going to respond. But, you know, it, it's just... Um, Undetermined should be one of the one of the factors. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And it seems pretty clear that, that it's not always about the science. So No. And, and uh, you might not know all the answers. Yeah. So, but science can only take you so far, too. Yeah. So yeah, it's true. I, I hear you. Well, I'm glad we're pushing back on that, and um, there's a lot more to read about online, and mm-hmm. and, and uh, listeners could also download. I think they could download the letter, yeah, uh, or view the letter, yeah, um, that Jim uh, wrote and received. Yeah, that's right. For letters. Okay, so another thing down in Washington that we're going to hit real quick: James Inhofe, friend of AOPA, friend of General Aviation. Really passionate pilot. He is a pilot. Eleven thousand hour pilot. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's real got deal. some experience. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just like yeah. He's the real deal. No question. Yeah. So you know he sponsored the Pilots Bill of Rights. Yeah. I got us basic med. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, that's right. And um, <laughs> but some stuff came out of that legislation on the way through, and Senator Hoff, he's pushing it back. He is. Yeah. So he's in. He's introduced what's called the Fairness for Pilots Act. Oh, so would this uh, affect pilots that might have some type of I don't want to say altercation, but say something mm-hmm. happened and they had to go and explain their, themselves to the FAA. Mm-hmm. This would involve a little bit of what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. So basically, and I mentioned Pilots' Bill of Rights. It's There's lots of names, and so it does get confusing. Senator Hoff was the sponsor of the first Pilots' Bill of Rights. The okay. second Pilots' Bill of Rights is what ultimately led to basic med, but it wasn't. Yeah, anyway. So this Fairness for Pilots Act builds on the original Pilots' Bill of Rights, um, and basically says, all right, this is in the weeds. You ready? Okay. So uh, let's say you bust Class B. Okay. It's been known to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm the FAA. I think that uh, you've busted Class B. I send you a letter and say, hey, you busted Class B. I want your certificate for 30 days. And I've got no recourse because there's no court that's going to hear me, and I don't know what to tell you And other than I didn't do it. That's right. Right. Yeah, and so you say, I didn't do it. The FAA says, no, you did it. And you say, uh, I want the NTSB to look at this. Okay. So you appeal. NTSB is like, well, show us all the facts. You say, um, here they are. And they say, no, we agree with the FAA because they do so often, uh-huh. uh, some huge percentage of the time. And you say, you know what? No, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. You want, I want to take the next step. Well, apparently the next step mm-hmm. um, after the NTSB, the only thing they can do uh, in that court is look at whether the NTSB had some sort of a procedural issue. Oh, like an error. Yeah. Or some um, hiccup. That's right. They can't do any fact-finding again in that oh, court. That's, it. that's interesting. That's not what you would think about in a, sort of a legal wrangling. Yeah. So it's not like you get to start from zero every time you appeal uh-huh. or anything else. And so, yeah, uh-huh. what this does... doesn't leave much room for pilots to state their case. Yeah, that's right. And so what this does is basically give the pilots a better shot during the appeal process. So, Ian, I think that, that that might mean that pilots finally will have a way to appeal this through some sort of a, a merit-based trial situation. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Hope so. Hope it works. I think that'll be great for pilots. It gives them another voice 
And it really lets you explain your case. And that, that class B situation that you mentioned is not uncommon. Oh, yeah. yeah. So easy to do and happens all the time. No and question. It, for folks like us, and I, I, I put myself in with you, I'm, you know, private pilot, and I, I'm, I don't have to fly for a living. But if I did, oh my gosh. that could that's really. That's money. That's, mu- that's right. That's your yeah, livelihood. That's it. So, yep. yeah, it's I important. understand why it's important. Yep. All right. So we got to talk about it. Uh, one more thing. Um, also sort of in Washington, but also affects pilots all over the country, FBO fees. No, I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> You've never had some yes. $50 ramp fee from an FBO? Yeah. I actually had to pay about 7 bucks a gallon for gas a number of years ago in Atlanta. Oh. Could I mention the FBO that we were out? Of that course. I was out? Yeah, that's, that's, it yeah. was. I won't say anything. I won't mention their name, but if you're going to sign something, uh-huh. you'd be writing your signature on oh, the line. Right? Yes. <laughs> but um, it was a really nice FBO. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know if it was worth seven bucks a gallon. They do have nice FBOs. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, I think we did touch on this a couple of weeks ago, uh, this issue of FBO fees, because we just started yes. getting into it. Yeah. A new story that just went up today as we record this basically says we are on the hunt. We are. And yeah. we're, gonna, we're not going to sit back and take no for an answer yeah. either. Yeah. So... This uh, this FBO fee uh, issue, you know, we've been hearing from pilots for years about just astronomical fees at airports. A lot of the time, it's because there's been a big consolidation in mm-hmm. the FBOs. Yeah, like for instance, I believe if I could be wrong, but I thought Signature bought Landmark. Yeah, that's right. And okay. so they so now you've got like a monopoly. Yeah, Some, sometimes. Yeah, Some places. Yeah, they could be a single source provider. I mean, there's all kinds of really complex rules that go into whether you're allowed to have a single source FBO or right. whether there have to be competition and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we're, what we're concerned about is, and, and what Mark Baker says, is that he's fighting for this idea. So think about this. It's yep. like when we drive, right? Mm-hmm. We're driving down the highway and um, we want to go to grandma's house that's on exit 56. Yeah. Um, if, we're on a, if we're on a publicly built road, yeah. right? We get off on exit 56, we go to grandma's house. We're there. We don't have to go through the gas station and pay a toll at the gas station. No, don't. For hundreds of dollars, right? Correct. But that's what happens when we fly places. So it's almost like you're disconnecting the dots rather yeah. than connecting the dots. Yeah, you're putting um, a public, uh, you're putting a private, well, in this case, they're a public corporation. You're putting a private company, we'll call it, a for-profit company right. in, in the way between the runway and the road. Yeah, that doesn't seem fair, and it does, it's certainly not why uh, there are uh, GA airports, and it's certainly not why there are roads that we pay taxes to use. Yeah, also. that's right. And in many cases, um, we're talking about federally leased ramps. Right. You know, federally owned ramps and, and leased by these companies. And so what, uh, what Mark Baker is asking for is, basically whenever possible, uh, that there will be an access point from the ramp to the road. Just let us get from the ramp to the road. If you need yeah. service, that's fine. Have service. Go to yeah. the FBO, get fuel. If you um, need fuel. Yeah. If it's less expensive or you're low on fuel, jump on it. Yeah. But, but if, what if you don't? What yeah. if it was a short hop from your home base and you were going to, say, you were going to a wing seminar or mm-hmm. something like that? Mm-hmm. Or as, uh, maybe you're going to town yeah. to do something. Yeah. Because we've seen uh, cases, and this comes out of, you know, we, we've heard from members who... You know, in many cases, the fees are higher for jets, obviously, mm-hmm. who let's say they fly for business. They've told us thousands and thousands of dollars to pick up and drop off a passenger one time. That's incredible. I was, yeah, I heard about that. Uh, I was just reading the story. $300 for waiting 40 minutes on a ramp in Scottsdale, yeah. Arizona. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So there are just some outrageous fees. We've pushed the FAA on this, um, who is supposed to 
ensure uh, fair and equal access. They really haven't responded. In fact, what they did was give our information to the trade association that represents FBOs. Oh, how lovely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, th- this is a, this is gonna be a big issue for us going forward and something that we're definitely going to push back on. Well, one ag- once again, you know, AOPA is built on several pillars, one being, uh, access and the other being trying to keep things economical and yeah. it's just keep right on down. the mark for, for both of those. Yeah, absolutely. That's, a, that's actually, yep. That's, so that's we're, we're, we're not going to sit back and watch it happen. Yeah. All right. Boy, man, I think we covered the news, and we that's even before lot, Sun and Fun. We had a lot of news, and I'm sure there'll be a lot more coming out of Sun and Fun. Yeah, I, I hope so. So let's turn it over. We're going to talk to Max. Via um, Skype. Yeah, hear what he has to say. Okay. And uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll quiz him a little bit on um, some Garmin stuff, because he's a whiz on it. And oh, coming into Sun and Fun, maybe he's got yeah. some background that we need to make. Yeah. All right, so um, Max, welcome. Thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Tell me, I, I think you know we introduced you a little bit. Flight instructor of the year, really into teaching in advanced cockpits and that sort of thing. So, give us just a quick rundown uh, your your bio. Oh, sure. So I started flying when I was 15, got my license when I was 19, spent about uh, 25 years working for HP, uh, which most people probably know for all the printers they've uh, sold, and uh, got my CFI the last few years I was HP, and I've been teaching for about uh, 16 years, and spend most of my time in glass cockpit uh, aircraft because that uh, complements the uh, the G1000 and Perspective book and the, the WASP book I've written. So, you know, it kind of flows back and forth, the book and the flying, you know, they both keep each other current. Cool. That's great. And uh, you're based out west. Yes, I'm uh, operating mostly out of the Palo Alto airport, so uh, Silicon Valley. And I, I spent uh, about 30 years on the East Coast, and all I can say is we have more VFR days out here. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that, that helps uh, when you're teaching flying. Yeah. Now, you, you grew up not too far from me, I guess. Um, you're a, a, what, a Pennsylvania native, is that right? That's true. Yeah, I grew up uh, in northern Pennsylvania, Wellsboro, home of the Grand Canyon State Airport. Yeah, that's uh boy. So talk about VFR. That's <laughs> that's an understatement because that's like definitely one of the cloudiest areas of the country. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I remember they said the 220 cloudy days a year. I think is what wow. they said. Wow. And so where did you learn to fly? Was it out there or out west? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And wow. you know, it's kind of funny. My instructor was uh, Dick Johnston, for whom the airport's now named there, and he was a uh, Pennsylvania instructor of the year at one point. Oh, cool. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah. So. Um, the flight instructor of the year that it was 2008 talked about like how does that work what was the process kind of leading up to it what did you feel like you would accomplish to to deserve that award and then what have you what have you done since what does it mean so uh, the process is there are what 60 some FISDOs scattered around the uh, the country and each of them uh, makes a nomination uh, for uh, uh, four different uh, awards there's a mechanic of the year an avionics specialist a uh, fast team representative and a CFI of the year and then those uh, nominations go to the uh, division, the the regions. I forget how many regions there are. I think there are about nine. So uh, the Pacific West region uh, selected me, and then it goes to a committee which is actually outside the FAA. It has FAA representatives on it, but it's a an industry uh, committee which uh, then selects the uh, the final winners. And you know, for me, the the most important thing was just using it as a platform to uh, promote uh, folks becoming a CFI. Uh, I I use it every time I get a chance to talk about it. I use it as an opportunity to to mention that we definitely need more people who love aviation, who want to teach flying, 
and uh, you know encourage them to do what I did, which is even if they're you know out there working and doing something else, you know go ahead and work on your commercial and work on your uh, maybe ground instructor uh, certificate and then flight instructor uh, rating, and you're going to find that it's just a heck of a lot of fun to uh, pay it forward to uh, you know teach others uh, you know what what you become good at and you know help help this industry become uh, safer. So, all right, so you just touched on something I I did want to talk about, so we'll get right into a controversial subject. This idea of kind of an adult, um, maybe it has a different profession, moves into flight instructing, somebody who's a flight instructor as the profession versus your, you know, your so-called time builder. A lot of people say, you know, they, they make generalizations about this. They say, well, you know, young CFIs who just want to get to the airlines, they're, they're terrible. And, you know, you got to go with an older CFI who's more experienced. What's, what's your philosophy on all that, having come from the career changer? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think those are generalizations that may be true some of the time and certainly are not true uh, all the time. I think there are a lot of great uh, young CFIs who are out there building time for the airlines and who are enthusiastic and, you know, care about their other clients and, you know, may uh, connect with uh, younger people as well. Um, and there may be some who just kind of feel like, oh, my gosh, this is drudge work and, you know, yeah. I can't wait until I, you know, get to where I deserve to be. And gosh, you know, for those folks, um, I, I, you know, I hope you'll put your heart into it as best you can because we, you know, I, I think attitudes sometimes come through. And, you know, people mm-hmm. will kind of get if you're really there for them or if you're really just there for you. So, yeah, I encourage everybody to, you know, be there for your client. Be there to uh, give the best possible flight instruction you can, regardless of, you know, what your ultimate career goals are. Do you think there's a difference, um, obviously, in mindset, you know, when somebody has that next step in mind already when they start this this instructing job? Do you think there's a uh, something that changes when you become a career CFI where you look beyond kind of the the necessary duties of a CFI, keeping the students safe, instructing, you know, um, getting them through the course into a more sort of holistic view of you're um, providing a service. These are customers. There's a certain level of professionalism that goes with that. I mean, was this something you kind of knew all along or does it take a while to, to figure that part out? Well, the last uh, job I had in Hewlett Packard was sales, and we were, you know, not not selling little things. I was selling half million dollar computers, and you know, when when you're doing those kinds of things, the the focus truly is on figuring out you know, what are the customers' needs. Because if you don't uh, understand those, you don't have a prayer, you know, in terms of uh, you know getting them to be interested uh, in your product. Uh, so to me, flying is kind of the same thing. And a flight instructor mm-hmm. needs to understand what is their uh, client's unique needs. You know, everybody who comes to a uh, flight school or a flight instructor is going to be different, is going to have different needs, is going to have different uh, challenges. And it's really up to the uh, the CFI to kind of figure that out. You know, what's what's unique and special about this person and, you know, how can I best uh, help them achieve uh, their objectives? So you've, um, you've decided to focus primarily on advanced cockpit kind of stuff, um, advanced aircraft. Why'd you go that route? Probably because it was just of the greatest interest to me. Uh, I was teaching for about three years on the ground uh, round gauge uh, aircraft, and I was totally shocked in uh, 2003 when the Avidine glass cockpit came out in uh, the Cirruses. Uh, shocked because I never expected to see uh, you know those kinds of electronics and GA aircraft in mm-hmm. my lifetime. Yeah. My my background is in electrical engineering, so I love the technical stuff anyway. And so when that stuff uh, came out, I just gravitated to it. In fact, I changed airports to uh, to get to an airport where there were more of those aircraft available for rent. Wow. Now, you know, what one, I guess I'll, I'll call it downside or potential downside, or, or at least perceived downside of glass and 
advanced technology in airplanes is that it loses some of that old sort of swagger romance side of flying. Do you agree or do you think that eh, that's not even really the case and we can still have those things together and they still work together? Oh, I think that they definitely uh, can work together and even folks that are trained on glass cockpit probably still fly a round gauge aircraft uh, some of the time. You know, I think uh, the advantages of, of uh, glass really shine more in uh, longer trips and uh, IFR and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're flying 30 miles for a hamburgers, it's like, eh, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure the glass provides that much extra benefit. But you've you decided to focus on it so much that you wrote some books about it. You mentioned those kind of at the beginning. And, you know, I've, I've got one here in front of me, and this is the G1000 Glass Cockpit Handbook. This happens to be the third edition. But you're talking like 300 pages of information about the G1000. I, I can't imagine trying to uh, undertake a project like that. So why why did you decide to do it? Oh, it's really funny. I went out to uh, the Cessna factory back in uh, 2005. I was with a gentleman who just bought a 206, and we were in what was then a week-long class to learn the G1000. Mm. And I uh, fortunately took a lot of notes when I was there, and I also um, had my cassette recorder, and I taped some of the sessions. And when I came back, I was kind of thinking, wow, why does this seem so hard? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I literally remember thinking, gee, I, I think I'm a kind of a smart guy. Why, why is this so hard? And after about two weeks, I thought, oh, okay, I think I know why. I think there, you know, there just aren't great uh, training materials uh, available. Now, that mm. was, uh, what, 10 years ago, so there were a lot more training materials available. And I remember thinking, boy, someone's going to have to write a book about this. Oh, rats, I guess that's me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh. it, was a, it was a fun project, and uh, I got through the, uh, you know, the first draft of it literally in just a couple of months. And wow. the book grew a little bit uh, in the second and third edition, so it was a, a little bit shorter when it first came out. Holy cow, that's amazing. Um, you know, just to get through that much technical information that fast. But I guess, like you said, I mean, that's your background. It seems like what you're interested in, so maybe it wasn't a slog, but... Oh my gosh, I, I'm you know, I can't imagine sitting down and having to write through this kind of stuff. It's amazing. <laughs> well, I can tell you this: I certainly enjoy being in the cockpit, flying a little bit more than I enjoy sitting yeah. behind the computer uh, <laughs> typing these things out. Yeah, right. So, as far as you know, people who struggle to learn this, these advanced tech sort of things, uh, whether it's the Avidine or Garmin or whatever, um, do you think it mainly comes down to this idea of what's available to them and the training, or are the systems? I'm, is there a, a human interface element that Garmin and Avidyne have missed? Um, are, mm. they, are they unnecessarily complex? Wow, I think you may have hit the uh, you know the heart of the issue there. Sure, I think that um, if uh, Apple were in the business of uh, designing uh, glass cockpits, they probably would be easier to use. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's really at the, the heart of the matter. Um, you know, one of the things Garmin uh, did when they brought out the G1000, which which was good at the time, is they used the same programming keystrokes that were used for the uh, the Garmin 430. So folks that were familiar with programming that could move right into the glass cockpit. Every keystroke uh, that they would use for uh, entering a flight plan and modifying it was going to be exactly the same. On the other hand, you go back to the uh, the 430, that was introduced in, what, 1997. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, the user interfaces there were a little more uh, clunky. Um, you know, Apple, what, came out about 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, things change with time. So, yes, the interfaces on consumer products are, are, are definitely better. And I think that, uh, you know, for example, I just flew a Cirrus uh, G6 on Tuesday, which has the, mm -hmm. the latest version. And there's no question, it, it's a little bit easier than the original G1000. And in, in what way? What did you think about it? Oh, wow. It was absolutely uh, fantastic. Uh, so Cirrus uh, introduced in 2008 what they call the uh, perspective version of uh, 
of the Cirrus, and that you could think of as an enhanced uh, G1000 with uh, different hardware and you know some additional features. And the the G6 has really just taken that uh, you know one step uh, further. I mean, one of the big differences, for example, versus the original uh, G1000 is the alphanumeric keyboard. And the, with mm. this uh, version, they've actually gone to a QWERTY keyboard, which mm. is awesome. So if you know how to touch type and you're used to using a computer, you're going to find exactly the same keyboard layout for the first time in a Cirrus. Though, come to think of it, I think R9, which was uh, an uh, avionics right. set available Cirrus, uh, had, yeah. yep, I think that had uh, the QWERTY keyboard as well, but that uh, didn't sell uh, you know, too many uh, copies. That was uh, from a third-party kind of retrofit for, uh, for Cirrus. But uh, they've done a lot of little things that, uh, you know, fixed uh, things that were annoying in the past. You know, it used to be you'd, you'd fly to an airport with a flight plan, you'd shut down, and as you shut down, you remembered, oh, rats, if I had only remembered to save that flight plan, yeah. I could invert it, you know, for my flight back. Yeah. Uh, this The new G6 actually saves that flight plan on, on shutdown, hmm. so it's there for you uh, when you go back, which is, you know, pretty handy. They've done some other really neat things uh, where you could now put a map. Uh, in place of your HSI, so that gives you, uh, you know, a great view right there. Some simple things, and that this is something that was done in R9. When you're uh, dialing up something on a comm frequency, it'll actually display the name of the facility. So if you're on Palo Alto ground, it says kind of Palo Alto ground. Nice, yeah. That would save me from many, many flip-flop mistakes where I just call the same frequency over and over again, expecting to hear a different person on it, so... <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and there's something related to that as well, too. When folks call up uh, for flight following, you know, they're at some random point in the sky. My observation is that people push the button, ask for flight following, and then start to think what their position is, and they just kind of make stuff up. Yeah, <laughs> right. So you really got to think about that before you push the button. But uh, with a G6, uh, you can look over the left side of the uh, PFD, and it tells you, you know, where you are. Mm. Uh, for example, on my flight, it told us that we were in the some portion of the ground, I guess it said, you know, by the terminal uh, at uh, Palo Alto, but, you know, in the air, it would tell us uh, what airport we were close to. And wow, you know, suddenly something is, uh, you know, simple as that just uh, became uh, automatic. Hmm. Uh, walking up to the aircraft, um, we have uh, keyless entry, which is which That's is really kind cool. of fun. Yeah. And when you uh, when you when you click the button to unlock the aircraft from you know 20 feet away, it illuminates uh, some tube lighting, which goes all along the full width of the uh, the wingtip, and that stays on until you're 200 feet above the ground. So that really nice. enhances the visibility of the uh, the aircraft, you know, especially if you're flying at night. Yeah, very cool. So now with the Garmin upgrades, it brings to mind a question: Are we making stupid pilots? Well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know both of us being instructors, it's like we would argue no, right? But um, but some people would that uh, that we're making, you know, rote button pushers, people who can't think for themselves, don't have situational awareness, uh, don't have stick and rudder skills. I mean, I, I think, you know, you would argue probably otherwise, but but why? I mean, how how can they not become complacent on the system when it's so capable? Yeah, so I think every time we introduce a new technology into any area in life, there's going to be a trade-off. And you're looking at a trade-off here, which is some things have gotten simpler, where now they don't have to know things that they might have known in the past. Um, and I think it's a challenge for us as flight instructors to make sure that they still know how to, for example, uh, you know, plot a line along a sectional chart and look outside the window and match what they see, uh, you know, outside the cockpit to what's in, on on the map. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very, very important to still have these uh, these basic skills. On the other hand, I think uh, you know, for folks that are interested in learning the technology, it really does enhance the safety to have uh, all these things available uh, to you. And you've got to also ask: Is it productive for a pilot? to have to do things an old way that's harder and takes longer. 
And I would argue not yeah. you know, to the extent that uh, you're not spending time uh, you know, running calculations and you can just look at a fuel range ring instead and see, oh, wow, I'm you know, getting into my reserve fuel. You know, that's time you can be more productively, uh, you know, looking outside, be thinking about alternatives, be thinking about your plan B or your plan C. So in general, I, th I think uh, new technology is a plus, but we just need to uh, make sure it's not a crutch and teach people the old way as well. So what about this, the stick and rudder part of that? I mean, with um, maybe people's reliance on autopilot and manufacturers in jets, it's always been the case, right, where um, autopilot becomes a part of the standard operating procedure. But now that's moving down uh, into our world. Do you think people's stick and rudder skills are eroding? I mean, are you seeing that uh, with your instructing? I, I think it's certainly possible. The The one area that I see is uh, on takeoff in larger aircraft, people seem to be not as aggressive on the rudder. You know, I, I, I think you know what all pilots do. If they if they wake up uh, at night in the middle of a nightmare, they, they scream, more right rudder. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I think I can say more right rudder in five different languages. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it should be question number one on the written exam for a, uh, you know, for a flight instructor. So, yeah, I, I think that continues to be the, uh, you know, the, the biggest challenge. So now the flip side of this, uh, obviously you mentioned the increased safety benefit and allowing you to work on maybe higher order skills, uh, which I totally agree with. Um, what about technology's effect on bringing people into aviation? Um, I mean, you're, you're, I think, a good example of this, maybe uh, where you're flying from. It seems like when people get out of their high-end cars, um, when they come out of nice home stores, when they you know do all these things, that there's a certain expectation they have of of where products are these days uh, when they pull out their phone, whatever the case may be. And a lot of times at the airport, that doesn't jive. Um, we see what's maybe closer to like a classic car show. But Cirrus, I, I think, and others, but but especially Cirrus, I think, has helped push that forward. Are you are you seeing that impact? Are you seeing that people are engaged in the products a little more and they're they're excited by them and and it maybe fuels their progress some yeah i think you're seeing uh, both sides of the equation um, i think that uh, there are folks who are uh, very uh, you know cost oriented and want the absolutely uh, least expensive way to get a pilot license and those folks will gravitate toward uh, 40 year old uh, aircraft and won't be concerned that the interior is uh, torn up and you know is ratty and it doesn't look very good and you have all other folks who uh, indeed, maybe driving uh, you know cars that are fifty thousand dollars and and up, and who even if they don't expect that in an aircraft, they may have a spouse who has that expectation uh, mm -hmm. for an aircraft. Uh, and so, especially for folks that might be uh, purchasing an aircraft, you know that becomes a you know a driving decision. And yes, you're right. Here in Silicon Valley, we do have uh, a few people who you might say, are interested in technology. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's really kind of funny. When I, when I look at my customer base, I would say, oh, only about 80 or 90 percent are, you know, engineers and <laughs> computer scientists. Oh, there is the occasional, you know, other person in there. Yeah. Um, He's just the I, venture capitalist, right? That's yeah. The, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm only exaggerating slightly, by the way. I mean, it is a, it's a nerdy culture out here. <laughs> and there are going to be uh, folks, uh, you know, in that group that really get turned on by the technology. So, yeah, we're a little bit different than, uh, you know, the, the average spot that you'd find in, uh, in America. Uh, so, for example, the rental fleet at uh, the West Valley Flying Club has 48 aircraft. I think they're the second largest uh, flying wow. club here in the country. Holy cow. And uh, we just crossed the point where fully 50% of them have uh, glass cockpits. Bits, which was quite a surprise to me. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. And so you, um, in particular, like to focus on Cirrus. I mean, I think, you know, uh, the cockpits being pretty much consistent across the line, especially in the past few years, that makes sense. And so you, you've branched out a little bit beyond, 
your you know one hour of instructing here or maybe taking a day rate or something like that now you're doing helping people transition into these airplanes and and helping them find them really and buy them and and picking them up and and then doing some type specific training for them yeah i i focused on it because um i i had to at one point uh, for an application count up how many different aircraft types i'd been and i was really shocked that it was 85 because wow. i had not i had not purposely gone out you know to try oh let's fly as many different kinds of airplanes as possible. I know some people do that. Yeah. Um, and I've type rated in uh, two jets. But I've always just loved the the Cirrus the best. Uh, to me, it's just fun to be you know closer to the ground, watch the world go by, as opposed to be up at uh, flight level 410 looking at the tops of the clouds go by. Yeah. <laughs> I would just much rather you know watch the watch the uh, the scenery. Mm. Um, so I trained at uh, the factory as a, a CSIP uh, Cirrus, a standardized uh, instructor pilot. Uh, and then the, there's a small core of us that have flown, uh, you know, more than a couple thousand hours and were the platinum C-SIPs. Hmm. So most of my time these days is uh, spent in the Cirrus aircraft. And I'm lucky. Uh, it turns out that uh, 10 of those uh, 48 aircraft I mentioned uh, are Cirrus. So we've, we've got a lot of them available for nice. rent. And we've got a lot of owners, so I end up working with uh, with both of them. So, hmm. yes, uh, my favorite day is uh, you know teaching a new owner how to uh, learn to fly their, um, their SR-20 or their SR-22. And you know, here's the surprising part. You know, some of these folks are student pilots. You know, they're they're starting from uh, from zero. Wow. Uh, now, I will tell you, it does take a little bit longer to get your you know private license uh, mm -hmm. from scratch in an SR-22 than it would be in uh, you know uh, an aircraft more commonly used for you know for training. Um, but I think the uh, the benefit of of training from zero in these aircraft is that you know when you do get your license, even though it may be more than 100 hours, you're going to really know that aircraft incredibly well. And I've looked at uh, accident statistics over the years, and it looks to me like uh, once you get past 100 hours in any particular type of aircraft, the accident rate tends to go down. So I think the goal for anybody transitioning into any aircraft is to try and get you know 100 hours in there as safely as possible as you gradually expand the uh, the envelope. So I think there's a real benefit for you know folks who decide you know if if the Cirrus is the plane they think they want to be flying, sure, there's no reason they shouldn't go ahead and get it uh, you know as their uh, as their initial private license. So I knew that. People occasionally train in the 20 as a primary, but um, you're finding in the 22 is starting from zero. Yes, I've uh, wow. done a few of those. And again, we were talking about rudder before. Yeah, that's that's where it becomes a little bit more challenging than yeah. the, the 20 because the, the rudder forces are uh, significantly stronger. And, you know, it's, it's not that it's inherently hard to do. It's just that you have to... Uh, form that mental connection in your brain, which is that, you know, when the right hand is moving forward the, on the throttle, then the right foot needs to be moving simultaneously. Yeah. And if you can get people to kind of move the, the entire right side of their body together simultaneously, it's not it's not that difficult of a, a skill to forge. So you mentioned the CSIP program. Um, one thing, I, I've been really astounded at Cirrus and the, the way they've been able to reduce the accident rate. And, and I say Cirrus, but it's really in, in combination with COPA through standardized type specific training and this is something i think people are just kind of waking up to now in the in the lower end ga world obviously with type ratings it's like you're doing very intensive type specific training but we're just now starting to realize that it's like well especially if this is the airplane you're going to be flying a lot that um some type specific intensive type specific training is really valuable and and serious i think more than anything has seen this pay off um with just a, a really impressive lowering fatality rate yeah they have an incredible success story and there may be some people out there right now going oh no that's not true i remember cirrus had you know much worse uh, accident rate and that is true if you dial back you know 10 plus uh, years yeah. uh, when they first came out with the uh, the caps the uh, the, the parachute 
people were not using it as often as they should. I think, uh, you know, as flight instructors, we learn that, you know, people uh, use primacy when they learn. They tend to remember the thing that they learned first, and that becomes the first thing they fall back to. And if you didn't learn in a Cirrus and you learn that if the engine quits, you should circle down and land in a field, then that's what you're going to think of, even though you have a perfectly good parachute handle, you know, sitting, uh, uh, you know, atop your head. Yeah. And when Copa in particular a analyzed all the accidents, what they found was that fully one-third of all the fatal accidents uh, in the Cirrus probably would have been eliminated if people had only used the parachute. And they started uh, working you know, in conjunction with Cirrus to get that uh, you know, message out to let people know that they really should should pull. Uh, they found that the uh, there was a crossover in the statistics. It used to be they had more fatal accidents than they had parachute pulls. Hmm. And then about uh, four years ago, the numbers started the reverse. People started pulling more often, and they now have more parachute pulls than they have fatal accidents. So the net result is that uh, the last time I looked, which was a few months ago, the uh, serious uh, fatal accident rate was running uh, somewhere around half, might be 0.6 of the fatal accident rate in other GA aircraft. And that's, to me, that's a huge success story and yet, yet another good reason to uh, you know, choose to fly these airplanes. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, I, I, was, I would say ambivalent about the shoot. Um, you know, I didn't think it was uh, maybe as big of a deal as Cirrus markets it to be, but, uh, but probably more effective than many doubters. And, um, and then we had this accident actually here in Frederick uh, a couple of years yep. ago, the midair. I mean, we're talking, it was below pattern altitude. And, um, you know, in one aircraft, unfortunately, everybody died. And in the other, um, in the Cirrus, both guys walked away completely unharmed. So because they pulled the chute. And uh, that was the helicopter accident that's currently in trial. Yeah, yeah. And it made me a believer in the parachute completely. Yeah. Well, I went to a seminar um, years ago, and I have to tell you, there were times when I kind of thought, well, maybe I would circle down. But there was a, a very high time uh, Cirrus instructor uh, there, and he went through an explanation that made total sense to me. He said, you know, essentially, you know, if you're uh, coming to land in a field and you're coming in at 75 knots and you hit something, wow, you're going to have a tremendous amount of, of force. And, you know, a force is a function of the square of the speed. So if you're coming down under a parachute, you're coming down at about 15 knots, which is one-fifth the speed, you know, that you would be hitting something if you were, you know, landing on a field and ran into something. Mm -hmm. So you take five and you square it, that's 25. That tells you the force is going to be 25 times greater when you hit something at 75 knots than when you hit something at 15 knots. So I was sold instantly. He basically yeah. said, you know, if my engine fails, unless there is an airport below me, I will pull the chute. And, and that became my new mantra on the spot because, uh, you know, the, the rationale behind it made so much sense. Yeah, it's interesting. All right, Max. So enough about Cirrus. I want to get into some of the other stuff you're working on. You mentioned the books. Um, you also are a host on Airplane Geeks. Boy, that has been so much fun. I've been doing that for almost three years. And, and I got to tell you, I, I look forward to that uh, recording session every week. We've got uh, several co-hosts. The podcast has been running for almost 10 years. Uh, we're up to, what, 460 episodes. Wow. It's my favorite time of the week is to get together uh, over Skype and talk with uh, my co-host about what's going on in aviation. Now, that podcast talks really about all aspects of aviation, hmm. airlines, military, general aviation. Uh, and I got so excited doing that. I just thought, you know, I'd like to do my own podcast. Yeah. And so I have uh, just cr uh, started a new one and just recorded the first episode. And the difference is it's going to be shorter, uh, going to target 30 to 40 minutes instead of uh, the roughly hour and a half we do with the airplane geeks. So that means it's for people with shorter commutes. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> is, is that what a lot of people listen to, you know, podcasts while they're uh, they're Absolutely. Commuting. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it, it will focus exclusively on the general aviation. Uh, well, with unless there's just one story we can't resist, you know, talking about. But in general, it's going to be about uh, general aviation with uh, some international flavor, some uh, light sport uh, flavor. But also, and here's I think where it's going to differ a little bit from some other aviation podcasts. I'm going to uh, bring in tips, not just uh, general tips that apply to all pilots, but from time to time, just some down in the detail, uh, nitty gritty stuff about uh, GPS and uh, instrument flying. So wow. that's that's an area where I can take information from. Uh, uh, you know, the books and the uh, the online courses for the G1000 and IFR and kind of pull those into the podcast so people can get a, you know, a little reminder or refresher or, you know, a weekly uh, dose of that kind of information. That's cool. So, um, all right, give me give me a teaser and school me. What what uh, what's your tip on the first one? <laughs> okay, so uh, on the uh, the first one, the the down and the dirty one was answering a uh, a listener question, and now you kind of ask, well, how do you have a listener before the first <laughs> podcast? I wasn't going to ask, but yeah, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it turned out I had a question that came in on uh, Facebook, and I answered it, and I said, hey, I'm starting a podcast. Can I use this as the first listener question? So that person is now obliged to listen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's one way to build an audience. <laughs> exactly. It was a, a gentleman who was. Was, uh, flying uh, an aircraft into Idaho, and he was flying an LP approach, and he wasn't really familiar with the differences of an LP approach versus an LPV approach. And when he uh, connected it to his autopilot, he found it connected to a glide slope, and that glide slope took him through the MDA, which we know is mm. a, a no-no. Mm-hmm. Though in this particular case, it uh, got him into the airport because the airport was <clears throat> below minimums. Needless to say, <laughs> we don't mention the full name of this pilot uh, in the yeah. podcast, but yeah. it, it's an instructive way to talk about some of the gotchas that you can uh, find out there when you're Absolutely. using autopilots to fly uh, uh, GPS uh, approaches, especially the new LP approaches, which people are probably less familiar with. Yeah, wow, that is a good one. Huh. Obviously, well, some of us, I guess, know LPV, but yeah, LP, uh, that is that is a new one. I'm All right, tell me. I'm thinking now, LP. What is the LP well, approach? You're going to have to listen. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's like a news cliffhanger. <laughs> I should give you the uh, the name of the show. It's Aviation News Talk. So if you go out to aviationnewstalk.com, uh, you can find the uh, the first episode of the podcast. And I just thought, you know, I, years and years and years ago, I used to work for uh, a number of different uh, radio stations uh, before I got a real job. Hmm. No, I, I mean, I absolutely loved radio and worked for about five stations when I was in high school and uh, college. And uh, at one point I worked for CBS, which had the, the news talk station in uh, Philadelphia. Yeah. And I just like the idea of news talk and so aviation news talk uh, became the uh, the name of the show that's awesome great and then um you've also expanded the books to a little bit of online learning i guess i do i have uh, some online courses uh, years ago i had uh, cd courses and that the challenge with those was that uh, Ultimately, uh, people's software on their computer would change, and then they would uh, stop uh, working. Uh, so I went through uh, you know a couple times of having to replace CDs. Stopped selling the CD courses about two years ago, and uh, have now got them up online. In fact, originally I did have some online courses, but back in those days, the bandwidth was so uh, narrow it was hard to uh, you know get the large graphics through. Uh, but now, of course, the bandwidth is not that much of an issue. Most people have pretty good uh, internet connections, so they can find a link to the online courses if they want to learn about the G1000 and WAS and things like that uh, by going to the same website, the aviationnewstalk.com. And if someone is out there and has one of the old CD courses and it's not working for them anymore, uh, just contact me and we'll figure out how to transition you into the uh, the online course. Great. 
Great. Okay. Perfect. Well, thanks, Max, for uh, for stopping by. Great luck uh, with the new podcast and with everything else. Hey, thanks very much. And if anybody out there is thinking about uh, buying a Cirrus and kind of thinking about, oh, old or new, give me a call. I've got a complete list of all the differences, all the different model years. It could certainly help uh, walk you through that uh, decision. And they could just send me an email at uh, info at sjflight.com. And that's short for sanjoseflight.com. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Max. Take care. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ian. All right, David. I learned a lot from Max. He's a really interesting, informative guy, smart guy. I wish so. he was on the East Coast. I'd have a new instructor. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell Dave Hirschman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, great. So I think that's all the time we have for this week. Um, I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you could find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk or email us at hangertalk at aopa.org. And we're on iTunes and Sporty's Takeoff app. All right. Thanks, David. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Ian. Have a good son of fun. Thank you.